Well, I think hope is something that our world desperately needs, isn't it? Of course, hope is something that I think people long for and look for actually in many different things. Some people place their hope in their income, their material wealth, some hope in what they can achieve based on their own talents and abilities. Some people place all of their hope in human relationships and And yet I've seen people hope in the systems of this world, education, government, business, and on it goes. Everyone wants to have hope in something, and I think most people want to have hope in something beyond themselves, yet when they can't find it, often people become disquieted by fret and fear and uncertainty because, of course, without hope, there's what? Only hopelessness. I've always found it fascinating when, when you hear about someone who's rich and famous and successful by the world standards, at least, who takes their own life, and then you find out only later how despondent and depressed they were, how hopeless they felt about their lives and this world around them, when at least from the outside looking in, they appeared to everyone else to have everything that anyone could ever, could ever want which I think really underscores the truth about hope, which is the fact that there is only one source of lasting hope, eternal hope. It isn't found in what we can obtain or purchase or amass. It isn't found in the accolades of others. It isn't found in the world's definition of success. In fact, it isn't even found ultimately in the relationships that we have on this earth. Real hope is only found in the one who the Apostle Paul referred to as our blessed hope in Titus 2.13. Jesus Christ, of course, he alone is our hope, which means we're solely dependent upon him to do in us what only he can do. We can't make anything of eternal value happen on our own. In fact, we have absolutely no hope whatsoever without the working of Christ in our lives, for he is our only hope. And that fact is borne out in the lives of the greatest characters in all of Scripture, the mightiest, wisest, most gifted men and women, heroes of the faith, men and women of action, those who experienced the greatest success and achieved more than anyone else in their time. When it came to those great people, you'll find in Scripture over and over again, when it came to those great men and women, finding real, true, lasting hope, they were often reduced to sitting still before the God of the universe in humility, with great patience, waiting on Him. Waiting for the hope of the world because they knew. They knew that their hope would come no other way. There was no great feat of courage, no remarkable accomplishment, no amount of human success that could provide them with the hope that they so desperately needed and longed for. The author of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Of course, he waited 25 years for Isaac to be born. Verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, 
in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Okay, the hope that Abraham had in God was an anchor for his soul. And then there's King David. Talk about a man of action, a man who was not afraid to step up and step out into the unknown, even when everyone around him was paralyzed by fear. David was the man who knew how to get things done. And yet when it came to the hope that kept David through the most difficult and challenging days of his life, he didn't depend upon himself. He didn't depend upon his riches or his military might. No, when, when David needed hope, when he desperately needed hope, he stilled himself before God. Psalm 62, 5 through 7, he writes, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. You see, the hope that David had in God was an anchor for his soul. Keep in mind, these men and many others like them, both then and now, had seemingly everything. They could command entire armies, achieve victory after victory, could have almost anything they wanted. And yet when they needed hope, they isolated themselves from all that they had amassed and achieved. They found solitude with the very source of true hope far from the roar of the crowds, from the accumulation of untold wealth, from the applause of men and all of their achievements, they would humble themselves before God and simply wait for the hope of the world to come. Again, Psalm 63, David says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David had every material thing a man could ever want, and yet he says that his soul thirsts and his flesh faints as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And in spite of all that David had, he was desperate for God, his source of hope. You see, times change. Nations change. Cultures change. Governments change, societies change, but the utterly desperate need for hope for every human soul, that never changes. And that hope only comes from one place. Even when you've obtained everything this world has to offer, when people sing your praises and everything you touch turns to success, there is not one ounce of anything that we can squeeze out of this world that can ultimately satisfy our souls. And mighty King David, he knew it well. Verse 5, my soul, he says, will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when, when I remember you upon my bed and when I meditate on you in the watches of the night. When everyone else is asleep and everything is quiet, for you have been my help. 
And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David knew where his hope came from, and he knew that he must humbly and patiently wait, even in the watches of the night, for that hope to come. And it did. And he did. He waited before God. And Abraham waited, and Esther waited, and Mordecai waited, and Paul and John, they all waited on God, as so many have done throughout history. There's a theme, actually, throughout Scripture, where we see those from the mightiest to the lowliest, humbly waiting for their hope to come because they know it will come no other way and in no other person but Jesus Christ. He alone. He alone is our hope. And perhaps the greatest example of this in Scripture, of the hope that we have in Him, is the story of Mary, this young Jewish girl waiting on God to do what only He could do, to usher the hope of the world through her into the world that upon His arrival, Emmanuel, our hope, would transform this world and all those who would forever follow him. And here, here is why we should, every one of us, every time we look upon this story, here's why we should view it with nothing less than awe and wonder. Because everything that we're hoping for this Advent season, this Christmas season, favor to be honored by another, relationships. We all long to be known, don't we? Grace, our need, our desperate need to be accepted despite all of our imperfections and shortcomings. And of course, blessing. We, we all want our lives to be blessed. All of that which we hope for and sometimes try to obtain by running ourselves ragged through the holidays, hoping we can buy enough and give enough and get enough and do enough to maybe be fulfilled. All of that which we hope for, he has provided for, and yet he did it in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating, and unbelievably profound way, to the point that we really should be awestruck every time we read this story, because we're reminded in the most sobering and humbling way that our hope is found in him alone. There is no other way to hope. So listen, we, we can and we should actually slow down a little. Reflect a little. We should breathe a little and meditate on who it is that our souls must cling to if we're to experience the only true hope that there is in this world. And what a stunningly beautiful picture of this that we have in our story today. So let's turn together to Luke chapter 1, and we'll read it together. And just for some context, before we jump into the heart of the story today, let's read the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So right from the beginning of his account in the gospel of Christ, Luke wants to make it very clear to Theophilus 
first, who we'll talk about in a moment, and by default to all future believers who would ever read this account, that we can be certain that what the Gospels teach us about Jesus is in fact true and accurate, which speaks directly to the theme of hope. Because of this information, right, if this gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing more than folklore and fantastic stories, then we have no hope, which Luke is well aware of. And so he lays out his case for accuracy in this account right from the beginning. And I'll just tell you, if there was ever a gospel writer who was qualified to make claims about the attention to detail given in these gospels, including this one, of course, it was Luke. We know from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4.14 that Luke was a physician. And we also know from the same chapter that Luke is a Gentile, which makes him unique among the New Testament writers. He's the only Gentile author among them. And yet the gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles or the book of Acts, which is actually, by the way, the second volume to the gospel of Luke. Those were written together and intended to be read together, and those two scrolls traveled together for much of the first century uh, to the churches. Those two books composed together 28% of the New Testament, both written by Luke, which means he wrote more of the New Testament than any other individual author, which certainly speaks to his significance as a biblical writer, if not specifically to his accuracy as a biblical writer. But again, Luke is not only a physician, which in and of itself suggests an attention to detail and accuracy in his observation and reporting simply because of his vocation, but just this prologue to his gospel account alone, which you may have noticed is one long sentence, which was not uncommon among first century writers in the Mediterranean world to write these lengthy opening sentences to their works. They would do that so that their readers would know that the writing was a serious, well-researched piece of literature. But even with that in mind, this particular prologue by Luke alone is regarded by both past and present historians and theologians to be among the finest Greek writing of the first century. And by this single, albeit lengthy, sentence, Luke demonstrates his skill and credentials as a writer. Furthermore, he explains in verse 2 that just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, referring to the stories about Jesus, Luke testifies here that this information is coming directly from those with firsthand knowledge of the life of Christ, most certainly uh, including those 12 apostles. And then in verse 3, when Luke says that he has followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, the word closely in that verse is the Greek word akrobos, which is an adverb that means exactly or perfectly. So Luke is making his case here that this gospel has been recorded with painstaking detail. And in support of that, by the way, we have a wealth of archaeological discovery just over the past century that verifies Luke's accuracy and attention to detail in his writing. And yet even with all of that in mind, Luke is not simply asking us to take his word for it. No, in, in the words of N.T. Wright, Luke is appealing to a wide base of evidence here. He's using both oral accounts from those who were there with Jesus to the biographies and the gospels which were already written before his to his own careful study of those people and places and events described in the writing. Right? In fact, there are, there are self-proclaimed scholars 
who have tried to make the claim that the writings we have about Jesus didn't actually come about until two or three generations after his death on the cross. And yet, as recent as December of 1994, we have findings by Karsten Thied, he's a German expert in papyrus, uh, suggesting that we may actually possess copies of Matthew that date very close to the time that Jesus walked the earth, which is based on very careful and scientific analysis of the high, uh, handwriting script used in some of the writings that we have. And so there's a lot more that we can say about the legitimacy of Luke's writing, but you get the point. This wasn't just something that Luke or religious zealots uh, generations after Luke dreamed up on their own. No, and as a, a point of interest, Luke addresses the letter to someone named Theophilus. We don't know much about, although there are some intriguing possibilities. In the first century under the Roman Empire, to address someone as most excellent as Luke does to whoever this Theophilus is here, would typically indicate that the person being addressed was an official of the Roman government or someone very, uh, of very high social standing, someone very important. Okay? So this letter may be addressed to a Roman governor or a local official that Luke had come to know, one Gentile to another. And yet there's another possibility here worth considering, the fact that there are scholars who believe that by identifying Theophilus as the, the recipient, Luke is actually using a literary device to address all believers for all of time. Anyone who is a lover of God, because that's what the name Theophilus means in the Greek. It means a lover of God. And so if nothing else, uh, this opening is a beautifully written and very compelling introduction meant to validate an even more beautiful and even more compelling story of hope for an otherwise hopeless world. And so... Let's skip down now to verses 26 and 27. This is not long after the angel Gabriel uh, appears before the priest Zechariah and he foretells the birth of John the Baptist, who we know now came before to announce the arrival of the Christ. So let's read together verses 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name, name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the same angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to Nazareth. And Nazareth was a, a tough town. It was known for corruption and low moral standards among its people. And this is where there happened to be a young Jewish girl, virgin, named Mary, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And so Jewish weddings came in three stages in the first century. There was an engagement, which was a formal agreement made by the fathers, which I like now that I have a daughter. And then there was betrothal, which was a ceremony where mutual promises were made to one another. And then finally, the marriage, which typically wasn't for at least a year later, when the bridegroom would show up at an unexpected time for his bride. And I like that a lot too. And so make the boy wait, right? And so at this point, Mary is in that middle process. She's betrothed to Joseph, which was not a casual uh, agreement, by the way. In fact, to break a betrothal, the couple would have to go through the equivalent of a divorce in modern society. So this is a firm obligation of faithfulness and commitment between Mary and Joseph and their families. Everyone's involved. And Joseph was of the house of David, which uh, will factor heavily 
into the story next week, as we'll see, as will the fact that Mary was a virgin. So let's keep reading verses 28 through 30. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, the next eight verses that follow these, Gabriel describes the hope that is Jesus Christ himself who will come into the world through Mary and how that's going to change Everything, And so we're going to focus on those eight verses uh, and the implications of those eight verses next week. For the remainder of our time today, we're going to focus on these five preceding verses, 26 through 30, that we just read, where Gabriel describes the relationship between that hope that is Jesus Christ and the one to whom that hope is given, which, as we'll see, not only applies to Mary, but to all believers, including us today, of course. This is, this is where Gabriel... The angel of the Lord, keep in mind, who's just come from the presence of the Lord, according to verse 19. So we can take what he says on good authority. This is where the angel of the Lord describes Mary, the one uh, who not only is about to receive inside of her the hope of the world, but who also happens to be representative of every believer and follower of Christ as we receive within ourselves the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. Okay, this is where he explains that everything we hope for has been provided for in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating, and of course unbelievably profound way. And yet this is the hope. This is the hope that our souls must cling to. This is the reality, the truth that we must accept that everything our hearts long for, everything our souls thirst for, Everything our flesh faints for as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's all provided for as the Christ, the hope of the world, dwells inside of us. Listen to how Gabriel describes Mary in verse 28. He says, greetings, O favored one. And because Mary was chosen by God to be the dwelling place of Christ come to the earth, she was, of course, favored by God. And because we are chosen by God, to be the dwelling place of the Spirit of Christ sent to the earth. He favors us. When, when Gabriel describes Mary as O favored one, the word favored there is the ancient Greek word keritoo, excuse me, keritoo, which means to endue with special honor or to honor with blessings, which makes sense, right? Because Mary's being given the special honor and blessing of being the earthly mother of Jesus and to carry him inside of her. And likewise, we've been given the special honor and blessing because we've been chosen to have the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside of us. It is really, truly indescribable, the favor of God upon his children. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in 
the beloved. So just as Mary was chosen, we've been chosen to receive Christ as he dwells in us and us in him, which is the favor of God upon us, which also, of course, brings with it all of the blessings, the life in abundance that one can only experience, only experience when we are in Christ. And so although it sounds arrogant to some, Although it is becoming out of vogue, quite frankly, for Christians to talk about the favor and blessing of God that only his children can experience, it still remains as true as ever. But because of political correctness and cultural sensitivities, many believers shy away from talking about this subject because it sounds exclusive. But listen, the fact is, whether we like it or not, there are elements of the gospel that are exclusive In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. I didn't say it. He did. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whether we like it or not, that is a very exclusive statement. Acts 4, 12, speaking of Jesus, Peter says there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a very exclusive statement. In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In John 17.9, Jesus prays to the Father, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. The fact is there is indescribable favor and blessing that is exclusively available to believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'm not talking about a false doctrine or the material prosperity gospel that's been so twisted by people. I'm talking about the abundant life that can only be found in Christ. Not only is it important for us to understand and I think admit that to ourselves, But it is important that we explain that to the rest of the world, not in an arrogant way, of course, but in a compassionate and desperately honest way, because the alternative is leading people to hell. Think of it this way. If you were lost in a desert, groping your way around, dying of thirst, and everywhere you look, there is nothing but dry, arid barrenness. That is, by definition, a life of hopelessness. But then all of a sudden, someone walks up to you and tells you about this place where there are unending springs of cool, clear water and nourishment for your body and soul. An oasis resort where you can live forever and enjoy untold blessings. And best of all, they invite you to come with them and live there. And so just over the next sand dune, you see it. And you enter in, and it's all that they told you it would be and more. And so the owner of this incredible place comes up to you and says, everyone who lives in here gets to experience all of this favor, this blessing, this abundant life. But no one who lives outside of here can ever experience any of that. That is very exclusive, isn't it? How arrogant. How selfish, how uncompassionate until the owner says to you, hey, by the way, you can live here forever, but now I want you to go back out there 
every single day and tell as many people who don't know about me in this place as you can about it and then invite them to come here and live with you and me. Because the truth is, I want everyone to live here. But just one more thing. Don't be surprised when some of the people who you invite tell you that you're arrogant and exclusive and uncompassionate and then refuse to come with you. Because some will, re- will refuse. Some will reject that notion altogether. But I want to be clear. Everyone is invited. My desire is for all to come and live here with me. And that's the inclusive part of the story. Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So we don't need to be afraid. Listen, we don't need to be afraid to tell people about the favor, the blessing that we receive as co-heirs with Christ. People need to be told about that. Otherwise, why would they bother to even consider Christ? Why adhere to some religious creed? What's the benefit in coming to your church? It's singing your songs, giving away my time and my money to do uh, for some good deeds, right? I can do that anywhere. I don't need your religion. Well, that's right. You don't need my religion. But what you desperately need is my Savior. You need my Messiah. You need my Jesus. And once you accept that invitation, there is eternal favor and blessing that you cannot experience anywhere else That is the hope that only comes in Christ and it is the greatest gift that we could ever share with anyone this Christmas season. Okay, and then right after describing Mary as the favored one, the angel Gabriel says to her, the Lord is with you. And I'll just tell you personally, I can't imagine hearing five words that could ever be better than those. The Lord is with you. That is the most wonderful and wonderfully comforting truth to grasp when you realize that as a Christian, he is with us. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, again in verses 11 through 14, Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, when, when we accept his invitation and believe in him, we are sealed with his promised Holy Spirit and that is an eternal transaction. In fact, just after telling his disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That was just before he ascended to heaven, just before he left them. So how is he with us to the end of the age if he flew up into heaven? It's by way of his Holy Spirit, of course, with whom we are sealed 
upon placing our faith and trust in him. If you're a true Christian, a believer, and follower of Christ, then he is with you. Do you hear me? He is with you. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And what greater hope could we have than the knowledge that God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of the universe, the sovereign king over all kings, the one who loved us enough to send his own son to die for us, that God is with us. In fact, without him, We're utterly hopeless. The favor that we just talked about, the blessing of God, none of it exists if he is not with us. In Exodus 33, just after the Israelites turned away from God and worshiped the golden calf that Aaron made for them, God told Moses to lead the people from the wilderness into the promised land, but that he, God, would not go with them. So he he makes them an offer. All that stuff you think you want, go, have it. But I'm not coming. Moses replies, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, if God is not with us, we might as well stay out here in the wilderness with everyone who's lost because there is no favor, there is no blessing, there is no life in abundance without the presence of God. It doesn't matter where we go. It doesn't matter what we do or what we have or who we are with. If we don't have God, we don't have anything. And yet as his children... Those who trust in him and believe him and follow him, we're never alone. We're never without hope. This is the very message of Christmas. As John, the brother of Jesus, says he became flesh and he dwelt among us. John 1.14. It's the very reason that Moses said to God, if you're not with us, how will it be that we're distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. In other words, if you're not with us, then we can only talk about you not with you. We can only worship toward you, not in you. We can only know of you, but not actually know you, which is precisely, by the way, what it's like for every follower of every other religion and belief system in this world. They may know all about their gods, They may worship toward their gods, and they can be meticulously schooled in the knowledge of their gods, but Only Christians know their God, the God, the one and only true God. Why? Because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us and he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit so that he's with us now. He's with us tomorrow. He's with us forever. Jesus said, I am with you always. I'm not going to apologize for that truth. I'm not going to suppress the truth about Christmas in order to placate people's feelings about political correctness. And I'm not talking, by the way, about being obnoxious. I'm talking about being honest. We really should stop pretending to care about people when we're not even willing to tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. Don't tell me you love people if you're not willing to speak the truth to them because that is not love. In fact, that is the very opposite of love. If you believe that God's word is true, then you know there are people going into eternity every single day without God, without hope. 
Well, answer me this. Who's supposed to invite them into that relationship with him? We are. That's our job. It was one of the very last things that Jesus suggested we consider doing as long as it doesn't make us feel uncomfortable. No. Telling people, actually telling them about Jesus is one of the very last things that he actually commanded us to do. Final instructions, guys. I'm getting ready to fly away. I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. Final instructions. Go out into all the world. Make disciples. Teach them to observe. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. In other words, tell them everything that you've learned about me and from me. That is how you love people. Not by doing everything that we can to preserve their delicate feelings. No, I'm sorry. We love them by telling them the truth. And of course we do that, saturated in humility and with compassion. But listen, just don't forget, it is the truth that sets us free. Not good feelings, not positive vibes or political correctness. He is Emmanuel the hope of the world, and he is with us, and he can be with those who are lost all around us. But we have to actually tell them the truth about the hope that is in us. That is the message of Christmas that will not be lost on the world if we truly love people like we say we do. So Gabriel says to Mary, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That's another way of saying Mary was very humble. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, which seems redundant, right? That he already said that, didn't he? Well, not exactly, because the word favor in verse 30 is a different word than favored in verse 28. There's some relation there, but the word favor here in verse 30 is the Greek word charis. It means grace. So when Luke says that Mary was greatly troubled, in other words, in her humility, she's wondering, what did I do to deserve that kind of description from an angel of God who just came from his presence? And in effect, Gabriel says, Mary, it's not about your worthiness. It's about God's graciousness. And just as he was gracious toward Mary, he's gracious toward us. Back to Ephesians chapter 1 again, verses 7 through 10. Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, the things in heaven and things on earth, okay? So according to Paul, God has lavished his grace upon us, not because we deserve it, but according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Christmas is all about God's plan of hope for the world, which he set forth in Christ. And that work in Christ, of course, is a work of grace. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul explains that we're saved by grace through faith. So it is by the work of grace in Christ that we are saved, not because of anything we can ever do or achieve or deserve. In truth, grace is not receiving what we deserve. 
It's receiving what we do not deserve, right? Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, which is why this Christmas message of hope is for everyone, because it has nothing to do with getting what we deserve. So no matter how you've lived your life, no matter how far from God you are, no matter what you've done or how unworthy you may feel, this message of hope is for you, it is for me, and everyone who would listen and receive his free gift of grace through faith. Because it has absolutely nothing to do with our worthiness. So when I tell people about Jesus and they begin to list to me all of the reasons why they're not a good fit with him, I simply say, you know what, that's great. You are every bit as qualified to be a Christian as I was before I accepted Christ. Because it isn't about us. It isn't about our worthiness. It's all about him and his grace toward us, even though we are woefully unworthy. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, not the hope of the worthy. So his grace is available to all who would call upon the name of the Lord. And so as believers, as people who have freely received that gift of unmerited grace lavished lavished upon us, How can we not tell others about it? How can we possibly keep that message of grace to ourselves when the world is so desperately seeking approval, acceptance, and affirmation? It's it's why we have holidays and parades and commemorations and trophies for just about every kind of behavior imaginable today, both good and bad, because people want to feel accepted, included. No one wants to be left out. Everyone wants to be affirmed. I understand that, but I'm afraid this is where the modern church has made a critical error. In our desire to affirm others, we have largely stopped talking about the radical, paradigm-shattering, holy, life-altering changes that occur when you accept the gift of grace that is our salvation in Christ, thinking that we would attract more people by trying to affirm them right where they are in life, we have actually experienced the very opposite effect. People are wholesale rejecting the Christian faith because the message of change has given way to one of tolerance and acceptance and affirmation, wait for it, without any change whatsoever. So why would I bother to come to your church and sing your songs and worship your God if nothing changes? I don't need your church for affirmation. I can get that anywhere today. And so because the message of our desperate need for salvation by grace through faith has taken a back seat to our overdeveloped need to affirm everyone without offending anyone, people have stopped searching for grace because they don't think they need it when they're constantly being affirmed by everyone, including the church. I just love Mary's response to Gabriel when he says to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She doesn't say, well, of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? I'm a good Jewish girl. I I pet the donkey every day. I feed it. I sweep out the house. Of course God is with me. No, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what, what, what kind of greeting might this be. In other words, how can you be saying that about me? And Gabriel replies 
Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. He says, it's okay. Because God is gracious toward you. And Mary, he's going to change you forever. You'll never be the same again. Everything you've ever known is going to change radically. You won't live the way you used to. You won't act the way you used to. You won't think the way you used to. You won't love the way you used to. For by his grace working inside of you, even though you don't deserve it, Mary, you will have a hope that you never knew was even possible. That is his graciousness toward us. He takes us in whatever condition we're in and he radically transforms us and gives us a future and a hope that we didn't have and we don't deserve. That's why he came. That's why he humbled himself and came as a baby to this earth because he's gracious toward us. This is the message of Christmas. This is our hope. This is the gift that we must share with the world. It's why there's so much dysfunction all around us because from the moment we are born, our souls thirst for God. Our flesh faints for him as in a dry and weary land where there's no water and so people everywhere are panting after everything that is shiny and new, after everything that they can obtain or amass, after every new experience and fleeting pleasure because whether we realize it or not, our souls are desperate to be with our creator. And so, yeah, times change. Nations change. Cultures change. Governments change. Societies change. But that, that utterly desperate need for hope for every human soul, that never changes. And that hope only comes from one place. Even when you've obtained everything that the world has to offer. Even when people sing your praises and you've tried everything new and everything you touch turns to success, there is not one ounce of anything that we can squeeze out of this world that can ultimately satisfy our souls. There is but one answer. There is but one message. There is but one gift that we can offer that will satisfy the longing of every human being this Christmas. And that is Emmanuel. Our hope. Let's pray.